2: This is Susan Thompson, a host on New Books in African Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Kathleen Close. She's an assistant professor of politics at the University of San Francisco. She's written a terrific book, Political Violence in Kenya, Land, Elections, and Claim Making, published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Kathleen's book is richly researched and beautifully written. It's a very accessible book that draws on 15 months of survey and interview methods to center the politics of elites in crafting land narratives that lead or do not lead to electoral violence. Kathleen's book is also a great example of how mixed methods are a useful way to understand and explain what are the conditions in which individuals can, can be primed for physical violence. Her book, Political Violence in Kenya, is important. It's new. It just came out in May, and it raises, for me at least, novel questions about the role of contentious politics in framing elite political outcomes, as well as how elites maneuver to coerce, let's say, ordinary people to try to instigate violence before, during, and after elections. Kathleen, welcome to New Books Network. I'm excited to have you.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
2: Can you, before we get going on the background, give us just a brief summary of your book? Of course, I just gave that overview. It's about land. It's about (laughs) violence. How would you yourself explain your book to the uh, average listener?
1: Right. I think very briefly, I'd say that this is a book looking at how elites organize violence, but more so why ordinary civic groups decide to participate. And in the case of Kenya, elites are able to draw on these highly divisive and powerful land narratives as a way to convince or compel people who might not otherwise ever think of participating in violence. They're able to tap into these narratives to, to make violence thinkable. And so my whole kind of endeavor here was to think about how and why is that possible? And I don't think this is, you know, in Kenya, it's land narratives, but we can think about other contexts where maybe the narrative is, you know, even in the U.S. context. It's a, we've heard the term white grievance thrown around or other narratives that politicians or elite actors are able to tap into to structure political action.
2: So such as currently Law and Order, I suppose, the narrative of Law and Order. Yeah, that's a great example. But I thought what was so compelling about your book was your use of the logic of individual violence for what you call a joint production drawing and other Mm -hmm. scholars, of course. And I always think that the study of violence, those of us who study violence, we have something in our personal register that perhaps brings us to um, study violence or study politics. Um, Perhaps that's my first question. What brought you to the study of land politics and its relationship Mm -hmm. to violence?
1: Yeah, I wasn't. So I when I write my year after college, I was on a Fulbright in Malawi. And there, I was in the context there was thinking about, well, why aren't people mobilizing around land? There's tremendous land shortage, particularly in southern Malawi. And so the questions I was looking at were really kind of about the absence of collective action. So that year was 2007, 2008. So here I am in Malawi, and over kind of my crackling BBC radio, I hear events, uh, I hear the reporters talk about Kenyan's election violence. And you may recall the way that that journalists were talking about it, the way that expats were talking about it, was just this kind of unleashing of tribal or atavistic tensions um, on a country that was on this democratic path. But being a and kind of knowing the importance of land, I was really intrigued by Kenya's election violence, but just had this suspicion that it wasn't just tribal violence, that there was something else. And so I think that kind of, it wasn't that I was explicitly interested in violence, but I just... I had this hunch that it really or it was probably about land or had something to do with land. And so that's kind of what motivated me in my graduate studies um, is to solve this, what I thought was a puzzle, kind of to what extent does land, rather than, say, just ethnic tension, explain Kenya's um, election violence?
2: I love what you said because, of course, social scientists, we move on hunches. So the power of yeah. the hunch is not to be underplayed. And I think I hear something in your answer that I find in my own work. The logic of tribal violence, whether it's in the United States, as you mentioned in the mm-hmm. opening, or in Kenya, it's kind of uh, you know lost its utility. It doesn't explain very much. Okay. It doesn't tell us anything. So the reason you chose Kenya is because of your interest in land and these BBC cracklings in that in that vein why political science and why not you know the un or development agencies or so why usa like- yeah why
1: why academics <laughs> i mean honestly it was the world i knew so i had academics in my family and so i felt like i knew that path and uh, in the policy world, was really I didn't know how to break into it. You know, as a young 20-something, yeah. um, at, at in 2008, it felt a lot riskier. Um, it felt more of a gamble. And so I just didn't know those steps. Now, in retrospect, I think I probably should have considered those pathways a bit more. But coming out of college, kind of what you know as a student is like, oh, I'll just continue doing more to school, go and get my PhD, because it, I think it felt safe. And I felt like it had the time, it would give me the time to kind of develop these ideas.
2: And Um, and crack the puzzle, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But then let me ask a slightly
2: different question. Why political science and not, say, sociology Mm -hmm. or development or some other discipline? Like, what what attracts you to the study of politics? Because, you know, as I mentioned in my introductory blurb, like this mm-hmm. mixed methods approach is mm-hmm. relatively recent in in the study of politics in the United States, mm-hmm. at least. I'm just curious about that. What motivated you to the, to the discipline?
1: Yeah, and so I was, you know, I was a government major in undergrad or political science. Mm-hmm. And so I think from a very young age, I was interested in power and power dynamics. And so political science seemed like the most appropriate lens. Start thinking through these questions that, you know, in retrospect, of course, it, it could have been sociology, though sociology up until very recently hasn't had a very global reach. Um, so when That's I think sociology, yeah, as I, you know, back in my 20s, it felt like it was very centered on kind of the US and cities and race and ethnic politics in the US context. Um, and yeah, so I think that was always just kind of how it, political science offered the most intuitive way the way that was kind of resonated with me about how the world works, how institutions structure behavior, um, and how it all comes back to kind of power inequality.
2: That's such an interesting answer, because one thing I found about your book that was so telling to me, and I think it applies to the United States case today, is that a, a lot of political scientists look at states like Kenya and say that mm-hmm. the institutions are weak. And because right. the institutions are weak, there's an opportunity for corruption, so you can now take that same lens and apply it to the United States. As we, we know, of course we're corrupt. You just don't see it because our institutions are quote unquote um, strong. So I'd really recommend your method section to any listener mm-hmm. who's thinking like, how can I make a comparative case to study the U.S.? I think your book does yeah. that really well. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed your book. <laughs> um, but in that in that vein, you came to politics. You're interested in power. Which writers, academic or not, informed? Your work, your research, your writing?
1: Um, so I think going back to college, I was, I, I narrowed in on African politics from probably my second year of college, um, in large part due to um, kind of the dynamic duo of Catherine and David Newberry, who were Rwandan, scholars of Rwanda. Um, but what they, their emphasis is kind of what I just took for granted is that the lens was the ordinary citizen. hmm um, and so I think that without knowing the term micro level or local level, then I just had this idea that that's how you study politics is kind of the actions of, of ordinary people. Um, and then going into grad, and so they probably shaped where I ended up doing graduate school at UW Madison. Um, and so there I ended up working with Scott Strauss, who again, he's a, also a Rwanda scholar and, but what he kind of really, taught us um, or what we absorbed from him right. was, again, this um, the, this puzzle of violence, that we can't just assume that violence happens, but we have to think much more closely and carefully about why it might happen in, say, one community or one prefecture and not another, right? Right. And so that kind of pushes the level of analysis down to the micro or mesh level rather than the kind of macro or national where IR scholars have traditionally um, studied interstate violence or state violence. And so here I'm just, I kind of emerge without realizing it, emerge from this kind of group of mentors and scholars who are really focused on the local level. Kind of what is it about the local that might either restrain violence or enable it?
2: That's such an interesting answer, and I appreciate it so much. Um, I, too, am shaped by the Newberries. So hey, mm-hmm. shout out to the Newberries. <laughs> um yeah. David and Catherine have informed my work in really powerful ways. And Scott Dress too, of course, as you know, I've, um, for mm-hmm. listeners who don't know, I study mostly Rwanda. Um, so I've read them you know, my whole academic career. And just to be able to absorb from mentors, and I think that's my last question for you before we move to mm-hmm. the substantive part, What Mm -hmm. is the role of mentoring in your professional development? And secondly, how do you use those tools? You know, when I'm mentoring my students, I think of how Mm -hmm. Catherine and David spoke to me. I think Mm -hmm. of conversations I had with Scott Strauss and others. Um, But since we share them, I bring them up. Um, Is that part of your thinking when you're mentoring or being mentored?
1: Kind of trying to, oh, I wish I couldn't have it, or kind of... (laughs) Play the same role that say Kathy or David true, did true. in my academic life for my own students. Um, and I I think I try to, you know, I think the mentors whom I've had have been great in the sense that they really let me find my own path. Um, you know, I think in some graduate schools you just kind of jump on a project of your advisor.
2: Yeah, um, true.
1: Where so like there was moments of frustration where I felt like oh, I'm on my own. Why am I not getting more guidance? And, you know, being able to step back from it all now, it really was that kind of mentors letting me kind of figure things out on my own, find my intellect, own intellectual voice, which is really important. And so I think kind of with my own students, it's finding that balance of pushing them a little bit and guiding them, but really trying to kind of meet students where they are and what matters to them. Because I think if you're doing a project that doesn't, that doesn't feel important to you at some level, it's It's just going to feel it's not going to work.
2: It's such an interesting answer because I felt the same way. I felt so supported in my intellectual curiosity. But mm-hmm. sometimes so you're like, am I doing this right? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, I'll never forget Catherine. You must learn the language. OK, OK. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> and she's I mean, they're both right. I mean, such a delight to hear Catherine speak um, French when we were in those settings together. So hey, mm-hmm. Newberries, good to have you in the <laughs> podcast today. Um, I want to pivot to your wonderful book. Um, it's an affordable book. It's available from Cambridge. Can you summarize for us before we begin our conversation mm-hmm. your argument and sh- yeah. your evidence?
1: Yeah. So let me, before I get to the argument, let me just kind of like situate the puzzle a little bit. Sure. Thanks. So, and, and as I've, I've, I've hinted a little bit, um, there's this assumption, and maybe this is where me being a political scientist is kind of relevant, but I would say there's this assumption that violence is just kind of occurs uniformly though of course it does not, right? right? It does not occur uniformly within national boundaries, right? But much of the theories produced by political scientists tend to emphasize variables being measured or conceptualized at a national level, right? So things like state capacity, state weakness, the type of political institutions, the level of economic development, level of fractionalization. But I was as I've mentioned, I'm interested in a much more local question, right? So why might violence escalate in one farming community, but not another that was just 15 or 20 kilometers down the road, seemingly similar, or one urban neighborhood, and not another within the same exact say, same exact slum? Um, And so these theories that were available to me didn't really help get at that much more local variation. Um, And so I'd be the first to say, of course, certain features of the state matter, I was much more interested in, well, what are these local level factors that might interact with these more macro level factors to help explain spaces of violence and nonviolence? And so the argument that I come to, in thinking about this variation question, is really that the occurrence of violence is, as you mentioned, this joint production between elites and ordinary citizens. And so then the question is, well, how does this joint production happen? Right? How is it that elites are able to convince ordinary citizens to take on this high cost of participation in violence? And so, my main kind of the, the main takeaway there is that in Kenya, it's land narratives. And so, what these land narratives are doing is they're providing a coordination device. They're a key device around which elites and citizens can coordinate this use of violence. And so, when I say narratives, land narratives, what I'm talking about are the ways that group members, you know, the ways that they talk about how they acquired or of lost land, how they articulate their claims to land, and how they think about threats. And and that's a really important part. And so these narratives, they have a a material and symbolic dimension to them. We'll find that they vary locally. So one community might think about or have a particular land narrative that's quite distinct from another one just, you know, a little ways down the road, Um, and that these narratives are historically rooted. But what this means in thinking about the role of land narratives is that I'm no longer thinking about violence as a single event that erupts spontaneously, which is the way that not all scholars, but a lot of violent scholars have thought about election violence. This, thing, this event that just happens. So what it means now is that I'm thinking about or conceptualizing election violence as a process of mobilization, right, of most social and political mobilization that requires this interaction between elites and ordinary people. Mm. Um, And so in context of just Kenya, right, where land shapes livelihood and identity, and we have weak tenure institutions, what I end up doing in the book is kind of outlining what is this process of political mobilization.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: I think you do a great job over, you know, eight um, chapters. Um, each chapter is really tightly analyzed, tightly argued, Um, So let's talk concepts to bring the readers into Mm -hmm. the book. Um, What what is the difference between electoral and political violence, if any, in your study?
1: Right. Um, And so I've gotten this question a lot, and I think it's a really important one, and one I kind of, like, took for granted. Oh. Um, (laughs) So election violence, if you ask someone who studies, a scholar who studies electoral violence, there's a lot of different definitions out there. Um, Some scholars focus really on state violence. Others, um, if anything, that this concept is, is problematic because it's so vague and weak. So, some a lot of scholars will encompass or include everything from fraud to hate speech, intimidation to actual physical violence, and then people get nitpicky about well, physical violence does that include property? Is it just injuries and deaths to people? So, I settle somewhat arbitrarily, so on this definition of election violence as a form of political violence in which the dynamics of election competition. Shape the motives of perpetrators, which is really important. Who right. gets targeted? The identity of the targets, right? Are they party activists? Are they of a particular ethnic group aligned with a party? As well as the forms of physical violence, right?
2: Yeah, but you make a really important distinction. I think that I found useful. So I teach mm-hmm. a lot of my courses through the concept of um, everyday forms of violence. Okay. I, I teach violence on a continuum. So physical. Okay. emotional, structural, mm-hmm. symbolic, epistemic, depending yeah. on the audience. Um, so mm-hmm. you you characterize it through state-sponsored um, joint forms of violence and individual yeah. violence. How do those three levels of analysis play out mm-hmm. in electoral violence in Kenya?
1: Right. And so I was making this distinction in part for myself to kind of think about these these three different categories. And of course, they overlap. So I think State the saying, "This look, this is a type of violence where ordinary citizens aren't really participating. It's the military going into places, you know, where people are protesting. Right? right. It's what we're seeing in Oregon right now. Um, granted, not election violence, but like that. <laughs> when you think of it, this state just going into a community and spraying tear gas or bullets into a crowd because they're protesting the outcome of an election, or that because they might, or because they're protesting in the streets." i specified this joint violence, which is, I think, it's the main question in in the, my book is it's, and so joint violence means that there's, yes, the state's using violence, but opposition parties are also using violence, and they're needing to rely on the participation of ordinary actors as well. So that's what makes it joint. But we don't see, not all election violence is, is shaped by joint violence. Right, and then I guess, so, and then, and so that was kind of just my way of saying, okay, there's these different types of violence. Here's my main focus in the book. And then there's this kind of third category, which becomes it can become joint violence, on um, what I call private violence, and it's this idea that a altercation between two private citizens, in the broader context of, some, say, electoral contestation, can move from, say, a fight over a football match and very quickly kind of become, gain meaning in the context of these broader political divisions. So then as kind of a scholar, when you're hearing about this event, you know, you hear that like one person killed another in a bar fight, it's like, is that election violence? And I think that that's a question we have to keep asking ourselves is, well, maybe that fight wouldn't have escalated in the way it did if there hadn't been this electoral um Context. context stage, right, context in which people started thinking about each other's identity, right? So they kind of go from just being, you know, David and Sam to David, who is a of this political party, and Sam is of this political party, and now kind of our interaction is much more um, charged in a way that it wouldn't otherwise be.
2: I thought your framing, though, was really interesting and important in the context of Leanne Fuji's work. So you may Mm -hmm. know that her later work, just before she passed, she was looking at performances of violence, and she Mm -hmm. showed, and it might be useful um, for listeners to compare your book with them, Leanne's argument in contexts as different as Bosnia, um, Rwanda, and Jim Crow Maryland, the performance of individual Mm -hmm. violence was almost identical Uh, And it's um, your framing, I think, makes Leanne's argument more clear and her argument Mm. adds a lot um, to yours. But just to follow up Mm. on what you said, distinct from Leanne's contribution, how does the narrative or the framing of contentious politics, that's also a big part of your book, how does that Mm -hmm. shape violence and who gets to tell these narratives or frame these narratives? Because you are very careful to say these narratives are a kind of storytelling and mm-hmm. it crafts a story that people latch onto, and that latching in turn creates these different forms of violence. So what is the role of contentious politics in electoral violence?
1: Yeah, I think if I could kind of make that even more specific and sure. say, what is the role of contentious land narratives? Um, I think these contentious land narratives only emerge in the context of of contentious politics. Um. But for me, what they're doing, what these narratives themselves are doing, is making violence thinkable. Um, it's enabling elites to tap into a set of stories that might be latent, might not be particularly polarized. When I say tapping in, they're not just kind of lifting them necessarily from the ground, but sometimes they're also manipulating them, um, exacerbating them in such a way that you know, so so we can think of then they're using these stories as a way to create a script, um, to polarize groups, to underscore some sort of urgency and legitimacy of particular land claims, and then kind of to get to the violence part, to specify a program of action, right? So given that these injustices have been done to you, here's what we need to do to rectify that that situation, right? Given that, you know these people have stolen your land and they've been stealing your land for the last 50 years in order to, you know, bring justice to this community. You know, you need to vote me in. We need to kick them out in that order and justice will be restored and your land rights will be restored. So they're a way of tapping into both kind of grievances and fears, but they're also offering a solution. And I think it's that kind of the double-sidedness of these narratives of both kind of making people feel, justified in their victim status emphasizing threat and then also saying okay then here's what needs to
2: happen yeah that's so interesting too i think in the context of your book because one thing that i really appreciated and this may be a nod to Catherine Mm -hmm. newberry's work Mm -hmm. you learn through reading your text how emotional land is so we sometimes have this idea that land is a a commodity and it's Mm -hmm. a form of livelihood but for the communities that you studied, the people living there land was often an emotional connection that um, allowed mm-hmm. elites to craft a particular narrative that could be ignited in the way you just described. So given that, um, does emotional attachment to the land shape these narratives, or did you not find that?
1: And so maybe because I'm trained as a positive political scientist, <laughs> but I've, I've been very hesitant around the word emotion. Um Although I think scholars like uh, Elizabeth Wood have given us kind of license to think about emotions and politics. But I do think that it misses, and again, maybe just because emotion is like a very laden word. Um, But I think that land matters so much, not just because of the emotional connection that people have to it, which they do, but having land is about having power, right? It confers citizenship rights. Right. So to not I mean, thinking back even in the US founding, it's like you had to be a landowner to have any power in this country. Any say, yeah. Yeah. And so and so who is a citizen has in many countries historically been defined by who owns and controls land and property. Right? So in the Kenyan context it's not that much different. Having land is about having You know, it it confers a sense of identity, but in so doing it also confers a sense, uh, not a sense, but it gives, it grants power Um, to not have land. To lack land is to be a squatter, it's to be a slave, it's to be a tenant, it's to be a renter, right? And so in in that sense, it, it connotes insecurity and a lack of power. It makes you vulnerable. It means that you have to be kind of a client to some land patron. So any perception of inequality in land rights, really what pe- what I think people are responding to is a fear of, of either losing power or being further marginalized. Um, so it makes those kind of with weaker rights feel, a weaker land right, feel ever more marginalized, right, without the same citizenship rights, really, as landholders. And so, yes, it's this is to kind of circle back and say land matters because it's a way of accumulating wealth. It's a way of accumulating power. Um, and then it's the, there's this identity dimension. And that's where I think there's a, a strong argument for land people having an emotional connection to the land because it gives them a sense of who they are in the world. It provides a sense of belonging. I think that's a great
2: answer because one thing that I really thought about and it gave me language and tools to think about something that I've been puzzling through recently is the difference between emotion and feeling so emotions mm-hmm. in the sense that like maybe your voice shakes because you're nervous or you get riled up and you're very hot tempered, you, your face warms or whatever. And then, mm-hmm. of course, that's the emotion. And then the feeling of being, um, you know, feeling an injustice or the perception of not being um, equal to your landowning cousins yeah. or whatever is a feeling. So if scholars were to distinguish between like the emotion that can be witnessed in the body and the feeling Mm -hmm. that can be narrated in the body. I thought for me, so as someone who thinks about that, I found your book so interesting because you see throughout your book the absence or the perceptions of having access to land, access to a local leader, or a a political elite who could actually help you secure land rights, whether it was property rights or usage rights, was so interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, I thought that was a really interesting part of your book.
1: Yeah, I, I do think this emotions part, I don't want it, to dismiss it, but I think it's, you know, most common emotions that political scientists and sociologists talked about are feeling their emotions like anger or resentment or rage. Those are really hard to document as a social scientist a few years later after the effect. So I think there's part of it is just when we use the word emotion, maybe we really are talking about belief.
2: Yeah, that's um, also possible. Because, yeah.
1: Yeah. Whereas emotion is, you know, it probably is so in the moment. And so it does play a role in like why someone might pick up a machete or not. Right. Um, but I think the risk is it's so that's so intuitive. Like we can make sense of, oh, they were angry. They were afraid. Um, so I think it's almost not wanting to fall back on this emotional explanation, but kind of pushing ourselves as social scientists to think about, OK, what is what else is going on that makes that emotion so powerful in that particular moment?
2: Yeah, and I think that's um, a great summary because that's really what your book brought up for me. You can see the ways in which people have strong feelings. I prefer to use feelings because I think you Mm -hmm. can begin to talk to someone about how they feel and maybe in my interpretive way understand what they're saying as like an anecdotal form of um, study. And Mm -hmm. for me, it was really important. Like how do these, and this is where your book was so compelling, how do these contentious land narratives Mm-hmm. Track And then what is the process of mobilization in which you can get a person to pick up, mm-hmm. you know, a bar fight, um, a machete, whatever the case may be, the the broad definition of electoral violence. And to me, that's a sort of a, a fundamental question within political mm-hmm. science, for me at least, the political science mm-hmm. that I study is, you know, are humans innately violent or is it a societal mm-hmm. thing? You know, because I study Rwandas, you know, like, are Rwandans prone to genocide? No. Mm-hmm. It, there's there's a political process there, but as you know, mm-hmm. um, these things can be written about by um, those who don't study history, those who don't study in a social scientific way right. to be mobilized. Yeah, in I didn't want to yeah. say journalists, but I am one hundred percent with you. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. So all this editorializing to say, like in your study, how do these elites use these land narratives to to prime? You know, to 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 prepare them to commit acts of violence in in search of land.
1: Yeah. So I, I see narratives doing doing a lot of the hard work. Right. And then I'll kind of come back to like when elites can use these narratives. But okay. broadly the narratives, they help frame what the problem is. So in the Kenya context, the land problem, right? So the the problem is cast in terms of threat, of opportunity and justice, right? they solidify a common ideology, right? They help bring, these narratives help bring people together on a common set of beliefs and ideas about, say, who belongs, what is rightfully ours, what has been taken away from us, who who threatens us. And so in doing what the, the ideology is really doing, is delineating group boundaries, right? It's this really important work that we see everywhere in the world of creating this us versus them. It provides a strategic discourse for group members to kind of articulate their claims mm-hmm. and territory. And so this goes back to kind of providing group members with a script to say this is ours and it belongs to us and this is what we need to do to reclaim this space or this land or to strengthen our claims to land. Narratives also provide a way for elites to bargain with their followers. So what I mean by there is this kind of iterative back and forth process that can be, you know, the simplest version of that is if you vote for me, if you fight on my behalf, I will protect you from eviction right? or I will evict those others so they cannot evict you. So it's a conversation between um, an elite and his or her followers. And then finally, it also equips the LEAPs with a language for specifying the particular form of violence, the program of action. So if the belief is that outsiders have taken our land, the form of violence that's often specified, right, it's uprooting the weeds. it's it's specify and say we are going to evict these people in whatever metaphor they want to use. Right. Um, and so in Rwanda that had a particular, um, you know, it was about getting rid of the cock, killing the Yeah, the tall trees. Yeah, and so there's similar language in Kenya. Now we hear it in Ethiopia as well as rough, these dehumanizing narratives that are ultimately about getting that, you know, other group out, whether they're weeds or insects. In order to restore the purity of a land or territory, um, and so just kind of to summarize, what th- there's two land narratives that I found particularly salient in my own work. One was an injustice narrative, and this is backward looking. Right, this is this thing has been done to you by this other group, and so the logic of violence that emerges from that is one of opportunity. Elections are important because they're an opportunity to take back. Right, to rectify some injustice. And so the form of violence that emerges there, it's still it's a violent eviction, but it's as a way of eviction as a way of reclaiming land. Um, the other is in, an insecurity narrative, and that's forward-looking. So the logic of violence, rather than being about opportunity, it's about defense. Right, Elections are scary times. They signal a threat of eviction, either by rivals or the state itself. And so the form of violence that emerges from the, when when an elite taps into this or kind of creates or sharpens this defensive logic is we have to defend our land. We have to evict them before that they can evict us. And so it's really these two primary, a forward and backward looking land narrative that shape two distinct logics of violence, opportunity and defense. And in the case of Kenya had very similar forms of violence that come out of that. So, um,
2: in that case, then how do these narratives lead individuals mm-hmm. to actually? So, of course, you've talked about the ways that um, the other group is dehumanized. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the effect of, you know, the the, the fear. Let's say the anxiety of mm-hmm. an election as an opportunity for change, whether positive or mm-hmm. negative, depending on which side you're in. On is how do individuals like actually take up? forms of violence? Is it between people? Is it between groups? Is it done by mobs? Is it, Mm -hmm. how how is it done in your, what did you find in your study?
1: Just kind of like what it, how it actually proceeded.
2: Yeah. So how, like what, what did people do when they were energized to kill? So you're saying that the land narratives created these environments where people would take up um, different modes of violence in the context Mm -hmm. of electoral insecurity Mm-hmm. Um, you make a very important point, I think, in um, on page 281 of your book. You challenge mm-hmm. this idea that violence begets violence, which is kind of a truism in anthropology, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there a rolling sort of violence that people get caught up in? Are there a few instigators? Are they energized by the elite? Do they move from within their own communities to create violence to protect the boundaries that you just described? Can you talk to us about the actual dynamics of private violence to use your framing.
1: Mm, Yeah. So I think the first thing that has to, well, I talk about, yeah, this kind of stages of violence. Right. Um, So I just kind of outlined stage one is that we need this narrative um, to exist. Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get violence, right? So we need a few other ingredients in the mix. So one thing we need is we need a legitimate leader where people think that if they're going to participate in violence, they have a good shot at actually getting some reward. Because why participate in violence if you think you're not going to get anything in the end? Um, but the other kind of, we often need a trigger event. So in the Kenya context, it's this fraudulent election mm-hmm. that sets violence into motion. Right? We can think of trigger events, you know, in the case of Rwanda, it, many would say the trigger event was the shooting down on a popular amount of plane. Um so, kind of thinking about this is violence doesn't just have it needs some, it, there needs to be some event that kind of triggers this that sets it into motion. Um,
2: but to because, trigger individuals who are who are already sort of primed.
1: Well, being so interestingly in in Kenya in the pre there was priming going on in the pre electoral period. But what we can't really know is well if there had been a rel, uh, an election that seemed relatively free and fair, even if they'd been primed, the violence had happened.
2: Right, because the trigger right. event would be absent in your analysis.
1: Right. So that's kind of why I'm emphasizing that yes, priming is happening. These narratives, you no, know, elites and have been tapping into these narratives. Pamphlets are being spread around before in the pre electoral right. period. And I'm priming everyone to kind of, okay, oh, hey, if events don't go in our favor, here's what we're gonna do.
2: And calling on um, yeah. historical grievances as part of that narrative,
1: right? Yeah. And so this is where electoral violence felt a lot focused really on that trigger. They're like, "What went?" Let's do kind of a diagnostics of the election, right? Where I think my emphasis is more on yes, that trigger event that interestingly was necessary, but the way the way the reason that elites were was able to compel regular people to participate is because they were able to draw on these much kind of more slow-moving processes right. um, of, of grievances and a sense of injustice and, and fear of, of losing power. Um, and so then kind of the next stage is, well, how is it that people actually decided to start pick up pick up machetes and kill one another? Right. Um, and so this is kind of getting at your question of, like, how did it actually unfold? And so what I noticed is that people were watching the elections together. So imagine a group of 15, probably men, fairly gender segregated in a lot of these areas, around a radio, around a TV, they're watching the election results and they're kind of building on one another's anxiety. Sure. So you do need this collective um, component to it. Then when they, so there are particular events that they're listening in on. So when they decide or when they feel like, A, the elections are fraudulent, and B, like not only have the elections been stolen from us, but in our particular context, that that is bad. That means we are going to lose our land. Right. So there's gotta be something that triggers that sense of imminent threat, not just kind of a loss of elections. Right. So start with yeah. So I start with this kind of anecdotally, I start out with this one community in Isa, which is in Kenya's Rift Valley. And they're listening to the election results, and they see their kind of icon, William Ruto, can be pulled around by the state, by these general security officers. And so for them in that moment, that's when they feel like they've really lost it. And so they're worried that if um, Waikibaki, the incumbent elite, stays in power because they don't have secure tenure rights, their immediate thought is, we're going to get we're going to lose our land
2: yeah their thought is so uh-oh gonna,
1: yeah yeah Because they're going to continue to dominate and they dominated before and now they've stolen the election from us and so it's that mix of frustration over electoral fraud but combined with that sense of imminent eviction that compels this group to cross the line and start killing their own neighbors right these are people whom they gone to church with, or kids go to school together, they, you know, do business, not necessarily together, but on, you know, of course, sides of the road. Yep. Um, and so that 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 scenario was particularly jarring for me because it was so intimate. I mean, it was people who live in in relative proximity to one another. Um, but you have a set of, you know, a set of 15, 20 people who say, Okay, we've got to go burn down their home. Um now at other stages of violence, it is more organized, and by organized, I mean it's politicians kind of um, contracting out violence to loosely formed violent organizations. Right, so there's still ordinary actors, but they also have um, they participate or they're members of you know in or other who violent organizations that are basically um, violent groups for hire. Um, but that's that's only one component of kind of how violence unfolded um is these people who who are part- you know, previous members of these violent organizations.
2: yeah, I' love your answer because it reminds me to remind listeners that one of the real values of your book is that you have these four different communities, two in the Rift valley, two on mm-hmm. the coast. The dynamics unfold very differently in each of these mm-hmm. communities, and a careful read will show that you can't, you know, if you're a journalist, if you're a scholar, if you're a tourist, you can't mm-hmm. um, perceive electoral violence, quote-unquote, in Kenya as monolithic. Different right. groups are, and different communities are incentivized or not um, in different ways, and I thought that was a real value of your study. And it leads me to a question. I want to sort of transition to the present moment. You did your study, 2007-2008 um, two, uh, elections. Um, have there been a reconciliation process or some form of legal accountability for the violence of this time? Where is Kenya right now with the election violence of 2007-2008, given the prominence of land in, the, in these processes?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a big question. Yeah. Um, Let's finish with yeah. that. <laughs> you think there would be an easier answer? Or um, some of your readers might be aware that the ICC wanted to make Kenya a case um, and, and take the main per- what they perceived as the main perpetrators of violence to trial. Um, so that would include, on one hand, Uhuru Kenyatta, who's been out this kind of president. And it also included William Ruto, who was seen as one of the main instigators on the other side. Now, what ended up happening is that Uhuru Kenyatta and William Ruto formed a political alliance. So Kenyatta is the president and William Ruto is the deputy president, effectively bringing two sides that previously fought against one another into a, albeit fragile, political alliance. And so what that really did was it, they were able to undermine the legitimacy and credibility of the ICC, paid to this, kind of this um, you know, colonial, colonial institution, bent up prosecuting African leaders. Um, and they were so in doing so, they really hijacked the justice process. And so anyone who spoke out, who demanded um, action, was accused of being not only in the political opposition, but accused of kind of being with the West. Um, and they really were able to frame this peace over justice, right? So if we as attendees want peace in the in the next election, we ha- we cannot talk about what happened. So it was about sweeping the events of 2007-08 under the rug, in order to create or hold on to political unity. And it worked because people were so afraid of violence happening again that they re- no one really pushed the boundaries of holding different leaders accountable, of holding different institutions accountable. And Kenyatta's really been able to use that kind of peace over justice as a way what you've seen happen is this continuing consolidation of power um, under the Kenyatta administration. He's now in his second term. And um, that is has to say I don't think that there's been much of a national reckoning. It's so much as a attempt to forget and to move on Um, But a fear of kind of how, you know, there's always this calculation about how is the current political, um, how are the current political alliances, how are they going to play out for potential spaces of of violence in the next election?
2: No, Chris, your answer is so wonderful because it gives us many opportunity as listeners to think about projects or research that we might do. So one question Mm -hmm. that sprung to mind as you were speaking for me is will the grievances of not having justice, whatever that may mean to the individual mm-hmm. in a community, in a province or a region, yeah. will that play out in future elections? So we know so far it hasn't, uh, but it mm-hmm. could it could come up. And then, of course, questions about um, individual forms. Are churches involved? Kenya, as you know, mm-hmm. has a very dynamic um, civil society, lots mm-hmm. of different religious groups. But I do... Want to pivot to close? I've um, kept you for a long time, and this is probably an equally big and unanswerable question. Um, what can your study tell us about the probability of electoral violence in, say, the United States, or mm-hmm. in Kenya, or even, you know, Japan or Canada or something? <laughs> yeah.
1: So I like to think about kind of stepping back for a minute about the the book being useful in terms of thinking about generalizability as being able to on the one hand, a way to explain or predict election violence more specifically. We can also pick it up and think about it as a way to, okay, forget election violence as a particular outcome, but just as a way to think about how elites can use appeals and narratives to divide populations, sure. to consolidate the support, and then maybe incite violence. So maybe we don't even have to get to violence, right? Maybe it's just understanding how elites are able to tap into the fears and anxieties and desires of their constituents in order to shape political behavior, be it burning down a mosque or getting out in the street or actually you know, picking up some sort of weapon. Um, and then kind of the third implication or takeaway is, is specific to land, like getting us to think about, well, what is it about land or land as, as soil and land as territory right. that might shape, that can help us, that can shape different forms of political violence. So that, with that kind of said, um, thinking more about, can this help explain or predict or point to like potentials for election violence in the U.S. And I think, I think that most people come back immediately to this conversation we're having and saying, "Oh, well, it can't happen in the U.S. because the political institutions are so strong." Right. right. That people do not quite, what you need to have election violence is to have a, a, a significant majority of the country call the elections themselves into question and then kind of secondarily feel like these are such high state events in their own lives that they're willing to take on that risk. And so we have two questions in front of us. One, do we indeed have that political trust in electoral institutions and in states? And are people now starting to think of like who is in president, who is kind of who is in political leadership and and as creating these high-stakes events. In the past, I think we kind of, Americans, had the privilege of just, you know, no matter what party was in power, their lives didn't change that much. I don't think they actually changed that much, but I do think we're at a point where the stakes of national elections feel a lot higher. we are also at a point where trust in institutions as it is at an all-time low. So I don't think there will be election violence in the near future in the states, we are starting to see some of the kind of requirements for election violence taking form in the, in the U S in a way that I don't think we have in a very long time.
2: Um, now, I appreciate your answer. I think it's accurate. Um, I think it's cautious, but that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think we should extend our analysis much more than it's intended to do. Um, but I felt compelled to ask you because I'm sure no. it is on on people's minds. And um, given that, um, you know, the, the richness of your study and the generosity you've shared with us today, the intellectual generosity in particular, are there any books or podcasts or anything you would recommend to our listeners for you know electoral violence, Kenyan politics, mm-hmm. framing narratives, whatever you might find yeah. useful based on our conversation.
1: Yeah, a few so kind of a selfish plug. Um, the Journal of Peace Research has a 2020 special issue on election violence. So for your listeners who do have access to that journal, that's a and I have a, uh, an article in there. But it's a really great way to get a sense of the debate around and how both comparativists and IR scholars are think about election violence. Great. Um, there's a great edited volume called Violence in African Elections Between Democracy and Big Man Politics, which is wonderful. Um, Voting and Fear, Electoral Violence in Africa is produced by the United States Institute of Peace. Again, it's an edited volume, and I think it's done a really nice job of bringing different kind of um, intellectual perspectives to election violence. And then for scholars who want to think or read. Kenyan politics more closely, I'd recommend the Elephant, which is gonna kind of be um, alternative news outlet for the, that's a bit more intellectual but tracks these issues closely.
2: Oh, yeah, it's a great source. They um, listeners can follow the elephant on social media. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um yeah. last but not least, what are you working on now? Yeah, um, so I have one project that's still Kenya specific looking at the gender titling gap. So there's some data or I've accessed the data on people who have received land titles um, in Kenya 23, between 23, during the first Kenyatta administration. And what's remarkable there is, A, most women are not getting land titles still. But we have certain counties where, say, 50% of titles went to women and others were less than 2%. And so what I'm working with a co-author trying to think about, what are the reasons why in some spaces women are getting so many more land titles than in others? Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, so it's kind of shifting more to it's, it's on that same focus of land, but looking at the gender component, which is something that's uh, notably absent in my book. Um, and then, kind of the next big project is more on ref- it's looking at local sources of refugee inclusion and exclusion across different um, in Uganda, Kenya, and Kenya. So why certain communities, kind of again at the local level, are much more receptive of refugees compared to others, and. The, the answer of uh, my hunch again is yes. Your hunch, but I'll, it's always about land. But um, the way who controls land. But that's the kind of the next big book project. Kathleen, thank you for your time. Is there anything you wanted to say that I forgot to ask you? Or no, I think we've we've covered a fair amount of ground today, and I appreciate you. Um doing this interview it's been fun yeah it's
2: been really fun for me too thank you so much everyone you've been listening to kathleen klaus and her new book is political violence in kenya published by cambridge university press in may 2020 kathleen thanks great
1: thank you so much